Luke's gospel. Here we go. I mean, God's words, the, he's the same yesterday, today, forever, uh, no matter what comes our way. Uh, yeah, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. No matter what comes our way, his word uh, continues to be a rock and um, stabilize us in the midst of the storm. Um, so let's, let's get into Luke's gospel here this morning. I'll read it, pray, and uh, we'll move ahead. Everybody got a Bible? We're Luke 1, verse 8. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, verse 8. Here we go. Now while he was serving as priest, this is Zechariah. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Pray with me, guys. God, we come to your word. Because you're the only one. You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. And we expect to find wondrous things in your scriptures, God. And so we pray today that you would open our eyes. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to see your glory, to see how you are displaying yourself, even in places we might not have thought to look in this text. Jesus, all history, all Scripture, all of life directs us to you. It orbits around you, your glory. We pray today that we would be brought into that orbit, Lord. That if we've been wandering or if we've been straying, if we've been looking elsewhere, God, for comfort, for protection or peace, you would bring us back to the one and only solution to our problem. Namely, Yourself. I need you, Jesus, to be here with, with me, giving me strength as I speak. And I know my friends here need you as well. Would you please open up their hearts, their ears, their eyes. Help us to see you afresh here this morning. As glorious as you really are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, we're going to keep tracking with Luke. 
in this story, okay, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Gabriel coming, giving this announcement. We're, as we follow the story, we're now in verses 14 and to 17 or so. And Gabriel here is, is giving Zechariah a description of John, what this miraculous son is going to be like. His kind of, he's describing the, the man and his mission, if you will. That would probably be the title of, of next week's message, I assume. Uh, we're going to look more at John, the man, and his mission as it's disclosed by Gabriel the angel to Zechariah, the priest and the father. But this morning there is a little detail given in verse 15 that caught my attention. I want you to look at it there. It says this. Gabriel is describing John and he says, He must not drink wine or strong drink. When you say, what's that? He must not drink wine or strong drink. You're thinking, oh no, where's Nick going with this? Now he's going to... He's going to lay on us that we can't have a glass of wine. We can't, we can't drink a beer with our burger. No, not at all. What's Gabriel doing here? What's God doing here? Is he saying that John is going to be kind of doomed to spend his Friday nights alone? Right? He, he, he's going to have to, he's going to have to stay back from the party. And this is going to be John's, you know, destiny. Not allowed to have any fun with the rest of everyone else. No, I, I don't think that's what's going on here. On the very surface of the text, at least, we start to get this sense that John the Baptist is going to be set apart in some special way from this world for God and His service. Okay, We start to get an inclination here that uh, something's going on, that this child is going to be special. Now... There is more that God wants us to see in this. But if we're going to see that, we have to know our Bibles. Or at least, you have to have a good old ESV study Bible like myself with all the cross-references. You start to see, wait a minute. There's something even deeper than that going on here. God wants us to see something from the Old Testament emerging in this uh, life of John the Baptist. He's making a connection for us back, in fact, to number 6. Number 6 is where Moses is kind of discussing with Israel this special vow of separation. Okay? It's called, maybe you've heard of it, Nazarite vow. Nazarite comes from the Hebrew, Nazar, which means to separate. Okay? So it's this idea that an Israelite, man or woman, really anyone in Israel, could take this special vow separating themselves unto God for His service. So it's kind of, again, set apart for God here. This is Numbers 6. Moses is discussing this with the people of Israel. And you, you want to know how I know that the connection is being made? The first, <coughs> the first um, commitment that the Nazarite would make in number six, if you if you look at verse three, the first commitment that this person making the vow would make, it says is, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. 
So I said, oh, okay, okay. So now all of a sudden we're seeing John the Baptist, who's not going to, you know, drink any wine or strong drink, being connected back to this Old Testament idea of a Nazarite. Many scholars think John the Baptist probably even was a Nazarite, and that's what this is meaning. One way or another, we can't be fully sure. Either way, we know there are connections being made to this historical referent, the Nazarite vow. And what happens, I realize I'm getting right into the material here, you guys. I will, I will back up for a moment, um, so bear with me. I realize, <laughs> I'm just jumping right in. History lessons, and oh my gosh. <laughs> Um, so what happens when we see this connection being made no wine strong drink Nazarite vow when we when we start to see this what opens up what comes into view for us is something very very significant because in the Old Testament there are a few Nazarites a few uh, people that had taken this vow that are mentioned most important probably being Samuel of Samuel, we're told in First um, Samuel 1 <coughs> that he, kind of the second part of that Nazarite vow would be true of him. We're told that no razor would touch his head. Okay, that was another way that they would separate themselves for the service of the Lord. Just uh, a symbol saying, look, I am set apart in some way. Now, here's what we have. When we see this connection being made to this Nazarite vow, and then we consider the, 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 the significant uh, Nazarites of the Old Testament history. What starts to happen is John the Baptist, we see as being linked to Samuel and the story of Samuel. Now, I, I will get uh, deeper into this in a moment. But we're invited to make this connection between John and Samuel. And now I've told you, I think in weeks past, that in these first two chapters of Luke, I've been seeing allusions all over the place. Some of them, some of the more prominent, back to the Samuel narrative, the narratives of First and Second Samuel. And so when I saw this again here in our our gospel, I could not. I just, I can't bear another illusion here. At some point, I want to step back and actually look at these narratives together. The Gospel of Luke and First and Second Samuel. I want to do a, a, a bigger comparison so we can start to have more background and see what's going on as we proceed forward in Luke. <coughs> So, I thought this morning would be as good a morning as any to try to do that. So, let me lay the plan before you this morning. And <coughs> Forgive me, I'm still getting over the cold from last week. Um, you'll see on the handout that I kind of cheated. I could not figure out how to sum up all that I was doing without all these graphs and all these things. And I didn't have time to do that. So, I gave you room for notes, Okay. Uh, and, and if you ever, if you ever want my material and the various references and all these things that we're going to be doing today, um, it's online, okay? I actually put my manuscripts there. You can find all the, all the scripture references, everything there. Uh, but the plan for this morning, what I want to do first, I just want to show you some of the specific allusions in Luke's gospel to, uh, 1st and 2nd Samuel, to the Samuel narrative, Okay. I want to show you that this is here, that I'm not just making this up, that there are numerous places where, where God, through Luke, drawing connections back to Samuel. Okay? And then, 
After we've established that, we're going we're gonna to watch how those illusions serve kind of as this inlet into the, the, the greater story of First and Second Samuel and how, the first, how that story serves as a background to help us understand what's going to happen as we proceed through Luke's Gospel. And at the end of all that, you guys will probably be going, okay, Nick, thanks a lot for the seminary class. We appreciate this. Now what the heck was the point? Well, that's what we're going to answer at the end if we get there. <laughs> I, I, I believe... I believe God makes these connections for a reason. I I, I want to develop a a culture at this church that believes every, (coughs) every text of Scripture, every word of Scripture matters. If it's inspired by God, it's there for a reason. He's got something deep for us to get from it, something important for us to see. And so if these illusions, if these connections are as clear as I think they are, God wants us to see them. It's not just for the academic, not just for the scholar, not just for the theologian. It is for the children of God. There is nourishment for yours and my soul here. So I don't think I'm wasting your time. I think I'm undergirding. I think I'm supporting your faith uh, and, and your trust in the Messiah. That's my hope. I will tell you this, <coughs> unless you be kind of concerned with our pace in Luke or you question my decision to stop and trace out some of these illusions, I want to share with you my heart, okay, Just for a moment. I actually have your, your, your devotional life in view here. I actually have your devotional life in mind as, I, as I'm going through some of this stuff. Um, I've said this before, I... I, I I desperately desire for your Old Testament just to catch fire. I want you to start to see, I want us as a church to start to see, Jesus is everywhere. The crossroads, if you will, the roads that lead to the cross are all over the Old Testament. Every book, every chapter, every line. Like signposts directing us to Calvary. I want, by the time we get to Luke 24, which will be a while, and Jesus says, listen, disciples, you know all that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms? Is he's referencing that in uh, Luke 24? I don't have the actual, yeah, whatever, the end of Luke 24. <laughs> As he's referencing that, we're not going to say, what is Jesus talking about? Moses and prophets and psalms and writings and Jesus is there? No, I'm praying that by the time we get there, something will erupt in our hearts and say, of course he's there. We've seen him everywhere. He's not just in Isaiah 53s or Psalm 22s. Those are some of the clearer places we can see. He is everywhere. And I want us as a church to know how to see Him. Because I'll tell you, in your devotions, right? A lot of you sometimes probably, you, maybe you're going through a Bible reading plan or something else. And, and you just kind of skim through the Old Testament because you have to. Oh, it's there. All right, let's read through Kings. Let's read through Deuteronomy. Let's read through, you know, but let me get to the good stuff like the Pauline epistles or the Gospels that actually help me, you know, worship Jesus. I want, 
I want for you not to just read the Old Testament because it's there and we're Christians and we need to. I want you to read it because you see Christ there. It warms your heart for all that He is and all that He has done. Okay? It is true what Peter proclaims in the book of Acts in in chapter 3, verse 24. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him they have proclaimed these days. All the prophets from Samuel and everyone who came after proclaiming the days of the Christ. His death, His resurrection in the church in the last days. It's going to be crazy. Samuel doesn't even say anything about Jesus. He's proclaiming these days? How? How? That's this sermon, okay? Now, where do we see in these uh, first couple of chapters of Luke (coughs) specific allusions to the narrative in Samuel? That's the first thing I want to look at. We're going to go... We're going to go quick here because I'm just trying to set us up. I want you to see I'm not making this up. I I, I want you to test your pastor. Sometimes I, I show you some of the stuff I'm doing behind the kitchen... You know, or in the kitchen, so that you guys, you guys know. Okay, we're doing the work here. <laughs> all right, I'm not just coming out and enjoying it. And there's MSG and all those other things all over the meal. We got the real stuff going on in the kitchen. Hopefully, prayerfully, I want you to see that. So, specific allusions. Luke begins his gospel um, by introducing us to what a man and his barren wife. This is verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. And then we read, (coughs) he had Elizabeth, but they had no child because Elizabeth was was barren. Verse 7. And Samuel, 1 Samuel, begins in exactly the same way, almost the same format with the same exact thing being disclosed. A man and a wife who is barren. Read this. Here's Here's an idea. Put your finger in 1 Samuel and then uh, your finger in Luke because we'll be going back and forth a little bit between those. But what you see in 1 Samuel 1, verse 1, is this. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zaphim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. And what do we find out about her? Hannah had no Children. So from the beginning of Luke's narrative, the story of the gospel, uh, uh, and when we compare it to Samuel, it starts off the exact same way. A man, barren wife, no children. And as we continue uh, in both stories, the same exact thing essentially happens. You have Luke that records in answer to prayer, a child is going to be given miraculously to the barren woman. All right, and then in in uh, Samuel the same thing happens, and we already noted that of the child John, he's going to be uh, along the lines of a Nazarite, and then the child Samuel also will be along the lines of a Nazarite. I didn't tell you where that reference was before, but it is in First uh, Samuel one eleven, where we're told no razor's going to touch Samuel's head. 
So we have a barren woman, a miraculous son, who's going to live his life along the lines of a Nazarite. Both narratives here. And then later, in Luke's Gospel, Mary responds to the amazing work God is doing with uh, both her and Elizabeth by singing, right? The, it's what, what they've called the Magnificat, if you're familiar with that. My soul magnifies the Lord, Mary says. But singing in worship to God. This is Luke 1, 46-55. And then interestingly, Hannah, upon this miraculous son and all these things, what does she do? She sings a song in worship to the Lord in 1 Samuel 2, 1 and 10. And we don't have time for this. We'll probably do this when we get to Mary's song in Luke's Gospel. Uh, But the content is remarkably similar. Scholars have always pointed that out. Uh, that, that they're singing similar words, all the con- everything's very, very similar. Parallels are clearly being drawn. The ladies are praising God for kind of reversing their personal circumstances and the circumstances of, of their nation. Okay? So we're already starting to see, wow, all over Luke's gospel and its beginning, there are these connections being made to 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Finally, um, this should be enough for us here. Um, there are these summary statements given in Luke's gospel, okay, um, about John and about Jesus. These summary statements about the kids after kind of introducing these, child, these children and their lives. This is what's said of, uh, of John there in verse 80 of chapter 1, Luke 1, 80. John, um, it said of John this, the child grew and became strong in spirit, okay? This kind of summary statement of John as he's, he's growing and becoming strong. And then of Jesus, we get a similar kind of statement. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 52, it says this, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This kind of summary statement. He's growing. He's increasing. And what do we find in Samuel? What is spoken of of Samuel in 1 Samuel 2, 26 and other places? It says this, Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. So Luke, God, clearly now drawing this connection between the miraculous children in, in uh, Luke's Gospel and the miraculous child Samuel in First and Second Samuel. So we've got to ask now, and you're all wondering, why? Why is God drawing these lines back? Why is Luke drawing these lines back? Telling the story in such a way that we're connected clearly back to the Samuel narrative. I think it's because we are invited at this point to go into that narrative. It's invoking the larger story of First and Second Samuel as background, as a way of helping us understand where Luke's going to go, what's going to happen with John and Jesus. All right? I realize this is heady. Hopefully you guys are okay. Did you drink your coffee this morning? You guys all right? All right. So, what I'm going to do then, I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to tell these stories. 
I just want to tell the stories. I want to tell the story of First and Second Samuel. And I want to show you the parallels as I tell the story of the gospel. I'm just going just gonna to tell the stories here this morning. I mean, you'd be surprised. It actually took a while going through First and Second Samuel trying to get a handle on this. And at every turn in the, in the, in the story, I was going, no way. This is, this is unbelievable. I mean, Jesus is all over <laughs> this story in, in the Old Testament. He's everywhere. And I, I can barely show you the surface of it. I'll give you a few high points. But what I'm going to do is tell the story in such a way that we see those connections. All right? That they become clear, hopefully. And then, like I said earlier, we'll step back and we'll go, so what? So what? Hopefully something will rise as we start to see the parallels, meaning, significance, the point will become clear. All right. Let's begin here with Samuel. All right? The narrative of First and Second Samuel is uh, best understood, actually, in light of the book of Judges. It's the book that came before it, historically. It's describing the history that comes before. And you want to know the main point of the book of Judges. It's actually quite s- simple. The author hands it to us. He just gives us a softball pitch at the end of, uh, at the end of his book, because he, he basically ends the whole thing with his point. And this is how the book of Judges ends. It says this. In those days, this is Judges 21-25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The whole point of Judges, we bring in these leaders, these judges, and, and we do well for a little while, and then, and then something happens, they turn from the Lord, they spiral down, they cry out for help, God gives them a deliverer, a judge, and then the same thing happens again and again and again. And there was no king in Israel. So people continued to do what was right in their own eyes, and the cycle just continued to spiral. Implication? Without a king? Anarchy. The people of God are lost. With the king, if God gives us a king, maybe we could turn this thing around. Maybe there is hope. So in other words, First and Second Samuel, the story there begins with this longing for a king. That's critical. That's critical to the whole story there in Samuel. It's all about a king is going to come. The story of the coming king, this is what we kind of already quickly looked at, begins in the temple in Shiloh. Okay? And we're told that in 1 Samuel 1.9, this temporary tent. But it was called the temple there. It begins in the temple. And here, a barren woman is praying for a child. God has mercy, provides his son Samuel, and this is what I want you to catch here. In the song that Hannah sings in response to what what, uh, God has done for her in bringing Samuel, there's this last line that's very important. She says this, The Lord will judge, this is 1 Samuel 2.10, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. I thought there wasn't a king yet. There wasn't. And exalt the horn of his anointed. In the Hebrew there, Mashiach, Messiah. In the Greek, Christ. This is the first time, this is the first time in the Old Testament, Hannah's song, the birth of Samuel, that the Christ is mentioned in this way, as this coming 
king. Okay? That's important to realize. You hear in the New Testament, you get there, you just think, oh, Christ, yeah, everyone's waiting for the Messiah, the Christ. Well, where did that anticipation begin? Here. There's going to be a Christ that's coming. You want to know what this does? It, it foreshadows, it in, a, in a sort of prophetic hint kind of way, what this Samuel, what her son was going to do. He's going to be a forerunner to who? The anointed one, the Christ, if you will, David, this messianic king. Samuel is going to come before this king, this messianic king. And you want to know what he's going to do? He's going to anoint that king with oil and send him off in his office, right? Samuel, the only reason Samuel is famous is because of David. The only reason. He exists for David's glory, to get David's story going. Now Luke. We consider Luke's Gospel. I won't spend much time here because we've looked at this before, but they're longing for a king. Same thing at the beginning here, right? We talked about the intertestamental period and how it just was spiraling down and everyone kept trying to, we're going we're gonna to free Israel and it never happened. And then we end up here at the beginning of Luke's Gospel and they're under Herod. He's the king of Judea. And we remember Herod is not of Jacob or of David. He's of Esau. He's an Edomite. And he's a puppet king for Rome. So Israel is in exile in their own land. <coughs> Things aren't right. And they're longing for, the whole first chapters of Luke show them, longing for this Messiah king. Where is your king that you promised? They're longing. He will get us out of this. He will fix the nation. <coughs> Excuse me. And the story of this coming king then begins where? In the temple. With this couple and, and these prayers from of old. Please God, why are we barren? What's going on? That those prayers being answered miraculously. John the Baptist. Along the lines of Samuel. And why is John famous? What's the point of John's life? What is it? He must increase. I've got to decrease. In other words, he existed to be the forerunner for the Messiah. He also would bring in the one who would be called the Christ, the King. And he also would anoint that Christ, not with oil, but with water. That is baptism in the River Jordan. Let's keep going. Samuel's life reaches its climax then at the anointing of King David. This is 1 Samuel 16. That's where David is anointed. But we have to remember something. There was a king before David, right? You remember King Saul in the story? We're kinda, it's kind of like the mess up. The, the, it didn't go the way that it was planned. And you want to know Why? They started looking with the eyes of the flesh, right? And what are we told of, of Saul, of King Saul? He came from wealth, came from prestige, right? He, uh, he, he, he was a man of stature. We, we read in, in, in the narrative that, that when he stood among the other men of Israel, 
he was he was he was like above everyone else by like a whole head length. Where their where their where their head you know ended his shoulders were there. He was looking down, you know, everyone's saying, This guy, this guy is king. He had everything that the world would value in a king, but he didn't have the heart for God, right? He didn't have the heart for God. So, 1 Samuel 15, 23, the kingdom would be taken from him. And it would be given to David. So God tells Samuel, right? Go to Jesse in Bethlehem. There's going to be a, 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 a son there of Jesse that I want you to anoint. He's going to be the next king. And so Jesse brings his sons, right? And you know, hopefully some of you know the story. He brings his sons out before, before Samuel. Samuel looks at the first son, the oldest and the strongest. He says, surely this is the one. Samuel didn't quite learn the lesson from the first uh, mistake, if you will. And God says, no, no, no. No, no, no. They keep bringing out the different sons. No, no, no. Is there, is there another son? Yeah, well, I mean, the smallest, the weakest, the youngest, he's out with the sheep. And that's why I kick him out there with the sheep. You want me to bring him in? He's a shepherd? Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, bring him in. Bring him in. This is what God tells Samuel. The Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's for Samuel 16, 7. There Samuel anoints David with oil in front of his brothers. Now, let me tell you then a few things about this anointing that are going to be important as they parallel our story in, in Luke's gospel. You guys okay? <laughs> no, you're not okay. We're so upset right now. <laughs> um, here's a few things you need to know about this anointing. First, it's done in secret. Okay? It is a secret anointing. It's an anointing that's hidden from the eyes of those that see it. It was in front of his brothers, but his brothers and his father didn't know what was even going on. Didn't even know. He put an oil on him. It's in the context of a sacrifice or something. But no one but Samuel knows what is happening with David at that moment. It is this secret anointing, if you will, of this king. Because Saul was, by all rights, still king at this point and would be until his death. So there's this secret anointing. God's saying, this is the one. Right? Second thing you need to know about this anointing. We read this. When, when Samuel puts the oil upon David, 1633, 1 Samuel 1633, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Hmm. Interesting. And then third thing, it marks the beginning of his service. Okay? As the as he's anointed secretly to be king, the spirit rushes upon him. He's empowered and anointed to serve the Lord. And his first act, if you will, in this new role is what? First Samuel seventeen. Slay Goliath. Single-handedly stepping out against the opponent of God's people and taking him down with nothing but a stone. Right? Now, the secret anointing then sets up this kind of uh, initial part of David's kingship to be one of kingdom conflict. 
Saul is king, but David is king in this sort of secret way. All right? So what happens? As God starts to exalt David, Saul gets jealous, right? God starts lifting up David, and Saul starts going, No way! I want to be king! It's me! Don't start looking to him. Don't start singing songs to him. What happens? Saul becomes murderously jealous, pursues David. David flees to the wilderness, right? God delivers him uh, from numerous attempts Saul makes at his life. And you want to know an amazing thing about David when you read the stories? He has mercy on Saul even while he's trying to kill him. Numerous times David could have struck him down with just a thrust of his sword. God just put him right in his hands. He doesn't do it. Mercy on his enemies. One final thing about the story that you just got to see. While David's in the wilderness, while Saul, the king of the flesh, is pursuing the king of the spirit, there's this community that forms around David. Okay? There's this community out there in the wilderness that forms around David. And it's not the high and mighty in Israel that are coming to David at this point. It is the low lives, the outcasts, the nobodies. Read this, 1 Samuel 22.2. This is yours and my story. This is us right now as we follow Jesus in the wilderness, just so you know. Everyone who was in distress, this is 1 Samuel 22.2 again. Everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to Him and He became captain over them. Did you hear that? In distress, in debt, bitter in soul, depressed. They were gathering to Him, calling Him captain. They started to see first. It was the losers, the nobodies, the weak, the nothing that started to see David might just be God's king. You will be captain over us. And, and, and David would, would turn this, this kind of ragamuffin crew into a fierce army, right? That some would later be called the mighty men of David. It's awesome. Now, in case I've lost you completely. <laughs> oh, jeez. What do I do with myself every week? Uh, in case I, I lost you completely, here's Luke's gospel. John the Baptist Reaches, his li- reaches the climax of his life at the anointing of Jesus, right? That's when every, everything's leading up to then, and then John just kind of vanishes from the scene. It's all about getting the Christ uh, into the story. And um, when Jesus comes, we notice that like David, he's not much to look at, right? I mean, even Isaiah would say this in Isaiah 53, 2. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire Him. So Jesus comes, humble beginnings, just like David. Nobody's thinking He's going to be the king they wanted. And then we note that His anointing too would be in secret. It seems no one around knew at the baptism. It's like that voice from heaven just kind of came for Christ. Came for his benefit. The Father loves me even when he leads me into the wilderness and I'm, I'm, I'm suffering and struggling. He loves me. 
It's the secret anointing of Christ there in the River Jordan. As John, the new Samuel, says, you're the Christ. That's how the Christ will be revealed to to, to me and ultimately to Israel. Secret anointing. People don't get it at first. And then what happens? The Spirit of God, right? Just like with David, the Spirit of God rushes upon Jesus at this point. Rests on Him like a dove, we're told. And then, what does Jesus do? But He begins His public ministry. Now I am empowered to move out. And where does His ministry begin? Where does the kind of inaugural moments of of Christ's kingship, if you will, begin? In the wilderness, in combat, kingdom conflict. Okay? There is, at this point, what Paul would even call another god of this world. The prince of the power of the air. The devil, the serpent of old, right? And he goes out into the wilderness to face this opponent. Anybody else think this is amazing? Maybe it's just me. And this serpent has offspring, right? That's what John would even talk about. You are like, you, you, you brood of vipers. A lot of them are leaders in Israel. And they love the things of this world. They like the esteem of man. They like money. They like, they like uh, power and prestige, right? And they want to be king. Or if they do anoint a king, they want it to be one that will get them what they value. Worldly stuff. And so as God starts to exalt His anointed, His Christ, they grow increasingly jealous, even murderously so. The story goes on. And what happens? Persecution after persecution. And then you have these incredible scenes where Jesus just kind of slips through their midst in the beginning of the Gospels. You remember these? Like, how did He just do that? They all wanted to push Him off a cliff. And He just slips through their midst. God delivers, right, from His enemies. And then what do we see at the very end, even even to the point uh, at the cross where His enemies are killing Him, but He is what? Merciful to them. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This Christ would forgive His enemies. And during the course of His ministry in the wilderness, What happens? Who are the ones that come to Him? Right? It's not the men of power, not the men of esteem. It's the nobodies. It's the sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. It's the weak. It's the people that have a a wound that won't heal, leprosy, broken, lame. All those people are forming around this Messiah in the wilderness. I would rather, I would rather be a sojourner with you in the wilderness than live in the palace of this earth without you. Foxes have holes, right? Birds have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is a wilderness king and a wilderness community. And he would take these people. He would take this community that would form around Him and what becomes of them? Do you recall? Acts 17, 6. Some of them would become the men that would turn the world upside down. Become this this fierce army, if you will, for the advance of the kingdom of God. That's what this captain does with these 
of lives. Now, bring the story of Samuel to a close. After Saul's death, David finally becomes recognized as king, right? And now finally he's not just anointed in secret, he's actually anointed in public in both Judah and Israel. He's, he, he ascends the throne. And we're told um, in 2 Samuel 7.1 that the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. This king, he took down all the enemies and now we have rest. So what do we see in Luke's Gospel? After dealing a death blow to Satan on the cross, finally Jesus starts to be recognized as King. That's the point of Luke 24. After His resurrection, eyes are opened. Oh my gosh, I get it. All the Old Testament, even Samuel, pointing to you. I didn't see it. I thought it was about David. We're still hoping for someone like David. But God came in Jesus. He's doing this. Now I see it. So people start actually recognizing him at this point (coughs) as king. And he ascends to the throne of David. I mean, what is spoken of him by (coughs) Gabriel back in Luke 1.32 comes to pass. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father, David. All right? God will give to him the throne of his father, David, which he had when he ascended to the right hand of his father and sat down. Right? Rest. Rest from enemies. A rest from enemies that David could never provide. From the real enemies of God's people, Satan, sin, and death already begun to put being put under his feet and will ultimately one day be fully so now what's the point what's the point of this why why do i tell the story and and, and go to all those details and try to show you look Look, Luke and God is, is drawing our attention to the Samuel narrative and, and David narrative and, 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 and he wants us to see because that's going to mean something for Luke's gospel as John the Baptist goes forward and, and Jesus goes forward. What is the point? Is this just all seminary stuff? The main point, it seems to me, is not found in the parallels of these two narratives. It's actually found, if you will, in the perpendiculars. The place where the narratives aren't the same is where the meaning starts to emerge. Okay, hold on. Here's the most glaring of all perpendiculars. This is what I, I think God wants us to see more than anything. As we're, we're going, wow, okay, I'm reading the Samuel story. I'm reading Jesus. I'm seeing how they're overlapping. I'm seeing how it helps me interpret what's happening with Jesus and where we're going. But what's different about it? I'll give you the, the most important differences. David was a sinner, and yet he lives. Jesus was sinless, and, and yet he dies. Okay? This, I think, in that difference, the meaning starts to arise. You see, I shared with you kind of the glorious rise of King David. And it was glorious, it was amazing. 
But it's like just as that plane starts to take off, the wheels just drop. And the plan, that story just kind of comes to a skid. You remember this, hopefully, maybe. Bathsheba, right? Lust, adultery, pregnancy. What do I do with it? Murder the husband, cover up, deceit, self-deception. All this starts happening in David's life where David began the story. We meet him as the, this good shepherd who even he, he takes down bears and lions to protect his sheep. At the end of the Samuel narrative, we see David starting to exploit, starting to feed on the sheep. And he doesn't ultimately bring in blessing. He ultimately brings in this plague. And he sets in motion this kind of spiraling down of kings that would follow and ultimately lead in exile of Israel's people, nation. And so, so, so David pictured the Christ that Hannah spoke about. But he wasn't the Christ. He prepared us for him, but David was not him. David, as a matter of fact, was desperately in need of all that the Christ would do, would be. He wasn't him. He needed him. Let me tell you where you see this. In, uh, yeah, I thought this was amazing. God gives us this little hint how the, how the story is going to advance in the future. In light of David's sin. And Israel's reading this. They're going, oh, David, we thought you were the one. And then it just starts to fall at this point. Check this out. Nathan is sent to David in his sin, right? This is 2 Samuel 12, starting at 13. Nathan's sent to David at this point, And David sees his sin. He says... I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. So yes, you've sinned. The Lord's putting it away. You shall not die, David. Though you should. You won't. And then we're told this. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you, the child who is born to you, your offspring will die. The one who is innocent, your child, will die. You will live. He'll die for your sin, not you. And I'm sitting there going, oh my gosh. This is incredible. God here in this, in this story is showing us how the plan is going to advance, even though David wasn't it. He's just wreckage on the side of the runway. There's going to come an offspring of David. He will do what David never could do. He will deal with the big problem, not the Philistines, but the sin that took down even David's heart. Right? He is going to come. We are, we are anticipating here the coming of the Christ. Luke 2.11 Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's what the angels declare at His birth. He's in the city of David. He's in Bethlehem. He's of the line of David in Judah, right? And He is the Christ. Hannah was singing about way back then. He is the one who will do what David never could. His life will follow the contours of David's 
only with one massive distinction. He will not acquiesce to temptation. Remember that in the wilderness where the devil's holding out all the kingdoms of the world, right? Here you go. Have it all, man. No. He's a man after God's heart through and through to the end. In fact, we come to find God himself takes on flesh and does what we could never do. Goes to the cross. You might as well at that cross see the scene with, with David and Goliath. You've got this low life, this lowly little shepherd going to bat for the sheep, right? He comes out with nothing, just a couple of stones. Everyone's laughing and mocking. Nobody thinks this is for real. Oh, you're the king of the Jews. Here's your crown of thorns. They had no idea that his crucifixion was his coronation. No idea what was actually happening in that moment that he would, as it were, sling a stone straight into the temples of God's enemies, or the enemies of the people of God. <coughs> he would do what David never could do. And what David desperately needed, he would take down Satan, sin, and death. This is what the whole entire Old Testament is all about, you see. God was not just, in, in, these, in these illusions and things, he's not just like a senile old grandpa repeating himself, kind of telling the same story again and again, and you're like, okay, we've heard that one, thank you. No, 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 no. In all these lowercase stories, he is moving forward the uppercase story, if you will, of God. He is moving towards in all of these these narratives, he's moving towards the one who would fulfill them all. Not just telling it again, but preparing us for him. He wants us to have eyes to see, oh my gosh, he's doing what what David kind of did. He's he's he was preparing us there to see him now. The whole Old Testament it's as if you have this, this, this kind of ringing out in the halls of the Old Testament, that question in Revelation 5, who is worthy? Who is worthy? You remember this? We looked at it a little bit last week where, where they're asking who can untie the, the seals and the scrolls and who can make the purpose of God move forward and they're looking high and low and they find nobody. Remember this? And then John is just weeping. He's going, I guess, I guess the story's done. I guess God's plan is done. And then, what do you have? Revelation 5, 5. Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. Who is worthy? Abraham? No. Noah? No. Samson? No. David? No. Samuel? No. All of them, all their stories fall up short. Moses dies outside of the land he worked his whole life to get to. Ever wonder why? He's not it. He's pointing us towards the one, the only one. By the end of the Old Testament, everyone's weeping. There's no one who can do it. And then, <coughs> sorry, <coughs> Luke comes. God, through Luke, Says, weep no more. Behold, lion, the tribe of Judah, son of David, root of David, he's going to conquer. I want you to watch how he does it. I prepared you for it.
So how's this going to help you at, um, <laughs> at midnight when your wife is going into labor with a 12-week-old little baby? How's it going to help you at midnight when your wife is starting to have contractions that should be six months away? So sitting here, I'm like, this better not just be academic, Lord. I need this for my soul this week. How does this affect what I do with this pain? And the fact that <coughs> we were praying all constantly, God, stop that. To the very end, I didn't think this was what was going to happen. I was like, are you serious? This is not what the, I felt like the Lord was, was, was preparing me for. And we're praying and we're, we're getting on our knees and we're begging God, change this. And I just got done last Sunday talking about, God, here's our prayers and here we are. I'm going, you don't hear nothing. How does this parallel with Samuel and the moving forward and the, and the ultimate Christ and, uh, and Jesus Christ and His victory, how does that affect? Me, on my knees, Monday, Monday night, Tuesday morning, as we're holding our little baby, just this big in our hands, horrible. How, what do you know? Is this just a Bible study at that point? It's not. You want to know what it is? It's a, it, this is what it means. You going to look for another king, Nick, at this point? He didn't hear you. He let it's like he just let your enemies just come right in, storm the gates, and just slaughter your your plans, and massacre your wife, giving birth to dead thing, blood. It's like what is this, right? You can look for another king. You want to know what this says? Just said no way. We've already tried this. The whole Old Testament history, the history of the world, is all about somebody's going to rise, but it's not it. He cannot deliver. No man can do this. No creational aspect can do this. God Himself has to do it. Don't look anywhere else. They've already looked. Israel did it. They went to this king or that person or this nation. Let's go to Egypt. Let's try trusting in these kind of prophets or those kind of gods. And they don't answer. They were all leading to everything in the Old Testament advancing for one purpose. Look to Jesus Christ. Where else are you going to go, Nick? Right? I was just struck by I know I'm keeping you like just struck by that. Remember when Peter, things don't seem to be going right in the ministry of Jesus and people are leaving him? People are leaving Jesus and Jesus said, are you going to leave me too? Is that what's going to happen? And Peter says, where else would I go? You have the words to eternal life. This this, this paralleling of narratives, the whole Old Testament moving towards the only one who is worthy, that's the point. Stop looking other places. Stop thinking you're going to get your peace, your prosperity, your protection some other way. Trust in the Lord's Christ. Trust in the Lord's anointed. Trust in His King. And you will find (coughs) it will be all right. He's the King of the cross, right? The King of the cross. He takes the sin, He turns it to righteousness. Takes the suffering, turns it to joy. He takes the ashes, turns it to beauty. I gotta trust him in this. I gotta walk with him in this. You gotta do this too.
He's the only answer. He's the only one. That's what all this theology is about. Gets real. It can take the shattered stuff of my life and put together a mosaic masterpiece. Doing it with yours too. Where else would we go, church, right? He's the king. He's the king. Let's look to him. You guys are gracious. Let's pray. God, uh, I so badly want, I want, I want the people of this church to know that, that you don't just jump to application because it makes you feel good and you don't just immediately <coughs> try, to, try to get a word for yourself before even understanding what you're saying. Lord, we want you to speak. And I pray that this morning, even though I spent a long time just in content, just in looking at your story, your words, before I ever even drove it home to their hearts, I pray, God, that you would show us the value in being rooted deeply in the Scriptures because when we're rooted there, when the storm comes, we're not moved. Lord, we see it all over. You're pointing us to Christ. Why would we look anywhere else? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Give us hope. You wash our sin. You deal with the real enemies. And you're coming again. That's why we love your word. Um, In your spirit. You are not present with us in the flesh. You've gone ahead of us, Lord, but you've not left us alone. And you, you don't hold any punches. You tell us that it's through many persecutions, much suffering, that we enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, God, that you don't try to give us a candy-coated thing. But you give us strength. You give us an anchor for our soul. And you get us through to the end. You're not like the first David who starts to exploit the sheep. You lay down your life for the sheep. And of all those whom your Father has given you, you will lose not one of them. No one can pluck us from your hand, Jesus. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.